John chapter 19 as we continue our going through the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter. So John 19. When you think about the unfolding message of the Bible, we come to the blood of Jesus Christ. All of the Bible points to this moment where Christ is crucified for our sins. Think about it this way. If you're taking a picture, generally there's something that's going to be in focus. There's many things that are in the background, but there's going to be one thing that you're going to grab. Maybe it's someone's face. Maybe it's the focal point of the picture. And then everything else is blurred. Everything else isn't crystal clear. And what we need to see more than anything else is the love of God displayed at the cross of Jesus Christ. To have that in the center of our theology and the center of our understanding of the Lord. To cause this section of scripture to be a little bit fresh tonight, if you're a parent or if you're not a parent and you have a particular child that you're bonded to, think about the suffering that we're going to read for your child to go through this. And to try to witness and watch what it would be like for one of your kids to suffer in this way. And it causes the sacrifice of Christ to become fresh once again. When we really start to meditate on a child that you love, your own child that you watched come into the world, or moms that you birthed into the world, to see them suffering in this way. And the father watched his son suffer in this way. Not only watched his son, but initiated the suffering, ordained that Jesus would suffer this way. There's one clear thing that I don't want anyone to leave without tonight, as such your love by God. If you're questioning or wondering, does God love me? We come to John 19 and we get encouragement of the fact that the Lord truly does love us. So join me in prayer. Father, on this cold night, we do ask for safety and protection upon the roads that everyone would be safe as they travel here to church and on their way back home. We thank you for Deb and the children's ministry team and what a great time the kids are having down in the kids area. We pray you would bless them tonight and they would feel your presence. Lord, we're all going through different things, joys and sorrows, and we ask that you would meet with us, that you would allow us to sense and feel your presence, where there's comfort, God, that you would provide it, where there's a need of provision, that you would supply it, where there's encouragement, conviction. Lord, you know what we need, and we're coming to your throne room of grace. We pray that we would grasp and understand your heart tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. The Gospel of John is written for a specific purpose. He says, I've written these things to you so that you might believe. And unlike the other Gospels, he doesn't record in a chronological way. In fact, he only records seven miracles and then focuses on seven I am statements. So we've been going through these I am statements. We've been going through these miracles. And now it leads to this point where Jesus is crucified. If you've studied with us over the last few weeks, we know that there was the large section from chapter 14 to chapter 17 where Jesus is with the disciples in the upper room, explaining to them the Holy Spirit's going to come. It's going to be for their benefit because the Holy Spirit's going to be within them. Last week in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays all night. Judas comes to betray him, and Jesus willingly goes to be arrested. Chapter 19 is the middle of his trial. He's already gone before the high priest. The high priest takes Jesus to Pilate. Pilate is the Roman governor. 
the Romans had taken away capital punishment from the Jewish people as they're under the Roman occupation. And this is where we pick up, is right in the middle of this trial with Pilate. So join me in verse 1 of chapter 19. So then Pilate took to Jesus and scourged him. Pilate orders for Jesus Christ to be scourged. And historians have documented this. This is well-known fact of what it was for Jesus to be scourged. It was called the cat of nine tails. The Roman soldiers would take a whip and they would have nine strands. And in this whip, they would attach bone, they would attach metal, and it was their instrument of torture. And they were experts at it. History tells us that some were actually killed just in the process of being scourged. It wasn't a scourging without the flesh being ripped open down to the very bone, sometimes organs being exposed. So here's Christ after staying up all night, praying all night, already sweating blood, already being mocked and spit upon and hit and his beard being ripped out. Now he's scourged. Isaiah tells us that by Jesus' stripes were healed. Jesus turned his back for you so that tonight you could rest and know he's never going to turn his back on you. Why was Jesus scourged? It's the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ that saves us. So why did he go to this extra measure of suffering? Why is it that scripture says that by Jesus' stripes were healed? What's the message of the scars on the back of Jesus Christ? It's his love for us. The glory of the gospel, the glory of the crucifixion and the resurrection, it means that you're never going to be alone. See, when Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you, he's backed it up by being scourged upon his back. He really means never. Even when you mess up, even when you do things that you ought not to do, he's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. Most difficult healing for us to really receive is internal in our hearts. There's the physical healing that God sometimes gives, but we have broken hearts through situation, through sins, through things that have happened to us. And we like to march on like there's no broken hearts. And sometimes believers are the best at that. We're really broken inside. Our hearts are completely devastated, but we just put the tough face on. We just march and say, I'm going to go forward. And Jesus Christ came to bring healing. He came to heal our hearts. And I think when we look at his sacrifice, when we look at his torture, when we look at the abuse that he went through in this section, and we relate our heart to Christ's heart, that's where we find healing. And if you're in that place tonight, for one reason or another, you have a broken heart, a broken spirit, by Jesus' stripes we're healed. He turned his, his back for us. And then in verse 2, And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. So now it's this public mocking. Oh, you're the king, you're the king of the Jews, so here's your crown of thorns. In Israel, it's very arid, things grow at a very rapid pace, and they have these bushes with thorns about this size. I've, I've seen them. If you get a chance to go to Israel, you'll probably see them. These are nails going into Christ's head. This is his crown that's placed upon the king of the Jews, but it's also significant. Why? Because thorns are a result of the fall. They're the result of the first Adam blowing it in the Garden of Eden. 
And now Jesus, the last Adam, comes and takes the curse upon himself. He's taking that fallenness upon himself so that we could be glorified. It's significant for us. As they placed this purple robe on Jesus, then they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Complete mockery. You're the King of the Jews. You're God. Smack, smack, smack. And they just begin to hit him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Three times Pilate's going to say he finds no fault in Jesus Christ. So as he's being beaten, as he's being abused, this purple robe, no doubt, taking on the blood from his back as he was being scourged, he then presents and saying, this is enough. I find no fault in him. Isn't it time to be able to allow Jesus Christ to go? Mockery is about the worst, if you stop and think about it. To get mocked is never fun in any setting. It gets something inside of you, doesn't it? When I'm mocked, that can really get me going. It can touch that anger cord pretty quickly. And we don't see that in Christ. He has ultimate power. He has no reason to be mocked. And as he's being mocked, complete self-control, our Savior. In verse 5, Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. In the Greek, this can be translated, Behold the poor man. The idea is, Pity him. Hasn't he been through enough? And as we read, we'll see that Pilate secretly, he really wants to see Jesus Christ released. But he doesn't have the guts to stand up and make the right decision. It's also significant that Pilate would use these words, behold the man, God in human flesh. That's the message of John. The word became flesh and we beheld his glory. Behold the man. We have God becoming man born in Bethlehem, born in a manger, humility. But now we have God became man and became sin for us. Goes to the cross, punished for our sin. So we behold the deity of Christ, but we also behold the humanity of Christ. Any humiliation that someone else has put you through can even become close to what Christ went through in his love for you. He understands, he knows it. In verse 6, Therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. It didn't work. Pilate was trying to invoke sympathy, trying to evoke the Jews, saying, Let him go, but they respond, Crucify him, crucify him. They're set against the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Pilate then responds for the third time and says, I find no fault in him. The scripture doesn't want us to miss, doesn't want us to misunderstand that Jesus is perfect, that he is the spotless lamb slain for our sins. Remember John the Baptist when he saw Jesus coming and he knew he was to baptize Christ? He said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If Jesus has sin, then his sacrifice is meaningless. This is the perfect sacrifice. This is the lamb that takes away our sin. Going on in verse 7, Then the Jews answered him, they're answering Pilate, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. We have law, and it's our law. 
And to me, that stands out. Doesn't that stand out to you? Because they took God's law and they made it their own. They changed, they abused, they tweaked this, they tweaked that. They elevated man's tradition over God's word. Now they're saying he's disobeyed our law. He's made himself the son of God. In the Jewish mindset, when you say you're the son of God, you're saying you're God. And they understood that Jesus claimed to be God. Why did they want to crucify Christ? Because he claimed to be God. So don't read the Gospels and think, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Yes, he did. Otherwise, they wouldn't have crucified him. The reason they're wanting him dead is because he's stating that he's God. Verse 8, therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. So this gets under Pilate's skin. They're wanting to crucify this guy because he claims to, to be God. I think Pilate's really wrestling. We know he's had dreams that were given to his wife, and his wife came and said, hey, don't mess with this man, Jesus Christ. And in his conscience, he's now going, oh, he claims to be God. And verse 9, and went again into the praetorium. This is the governor's house, the government hall where judgment would be given. And said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Jesus isn't responding. Jesus isn't pleading his case. How do you like to be accused of wrong that you didn't do? If mockery is not enough to get you going, what if you're in integrity, you're in morality, you're in godliness, you're in the right, and then someone accuses you of doing wrong? Hey, hey, wait a second. Let me plead my case. Let me get the final word here. Isaiah 53 verse 8 says, He was afflicted and he was oppressed, yet he opened not his mouth. Church, gang, brother, sister in Christ, Sometimes the best thing to do is to be silent. You're not going to win the argument. It shows great self-control, meekness, to simply be quiet. And in Christ's silence, he's accepting his destiny. He's accepting what the Father had for him. He's drinking of this cup of suffering. He knows this is the will of the Father. In verse, in verse 10, Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Now Pilate's feeling all powerful. He's like, so what? You're not talking to me today? Uh, I got the power to put you away, bud. I got the power to crucify you. And Christ responds to this. Jesus answered, and don't you wish that you could hear the tone of Christ and see the facial expression of Christ? Remember, Christ is extremely beaten by this point, spit upon scourged, beard ripped out. Many commentators believe that at this point you wouldn't even be able to recognize him. He's been beaten this badly. And he's looking down. Pilate begins to be sarcastic to him. Maybe Jesus lifts his eyes. He looks right at Pilate. I picture a warm voice, a self-controlled voice, a stern voice. You have no power at all against me unless it's been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Important lesson to remember. We don't have any power, no power, lest it's been granted to us by God. Any physical strength, any physical health tonight, it's a gift from the Lord. Any financial security, it's a gift from the Lord. Any authority in the workplace, it's a gift from the Lord. You go through the whole list, it's a gift from the Lord. 
And Pilate shouldn't be thinking that he was something. He was in this position because of God. Pilate's not the one who's in control here. Jesus is in control. What do you think the end of verse 11 means? Therefore, the one who's delivered me to you has the greater sin. It's speaking of the Jews, of the chief priests, Caiaphas. Caiaphas knew better. Caiaphas had the word of God. Caiaphas was the one who was driving this wagon, who was steering this ship. Pilate's still responsible, but who has the greater sin is Caiaphas, the one who delivered Jesus to Pilate. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. There's some ultimate manipulation for you, right? They're saying, hey, you can't do this. This guy claims to be the king of the Jews. And if he's claiming to be king, then he's the enemy of Caesar. But did you catch this here? He sought to release Pilate. Have you ever had a decision where you were set in your mind to do one thing, but by the end of the day, by the end of the night, you did the exact opposite? And the guilt and the shame of that? Imagine if it was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Pilate's seeking a way to release him, but yet he's not willing to stand up on his convictions. And by the end of the day, he turns Christ over to be crucified. We go on into verse 13. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Jesus sits in the judgment seat. Significant. Every detail in scripture is significant, especially as we focus in upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Why was he seated in the judgment seat? So we could be seated in the forgiveness seat. So tonight that we could know we're the sons of God, we're the daughters of God, that someday we're going to stand in his presence, not at the judgment seat to go to hell, but in the Bema seat judgment, which is the reward seat judgment, where God's going to give gracious rewards, where he tells us even if you bring a cup of cold water to a child in my name, he's going to give reward. That's a great place for us to be because Jesus went to the judgment seat in his love for us, and his love for the world. Verse 14, now it was the preparation day of the, of the Passover, about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. So this is early in the morning. And they bring Christ, and he now says to the Jews, behold your king. So he says, behold your man, but now behold your king. But they cried, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to be crucified. So they took Jesus and they led him away. Pretty short trial for such a big decision, don't you think? Pretty quick in Pilate's mind. Pilate knew he was innocent. Three times he said, I find no fault in him. But he wanted to please the Jews. Being a people pleaser has big effects. We see that in Pilate's life. If that gets into our heart and our mind, we'll go to great lengths to try to please people. Now Christ is being led out. They're taking Christ to be crucified. Verse 17, And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which in Hebrew is Golgotha. Golgotha. 
The place of the skull is right outside of Jerusalem. It's a place that looks like a skull. Thus it got its name. You can still see it today. It's got the eye sockets in the rock. This is the place that the Romans would take people to be executed, take people to be crucified. In Latin, it's Calvary. That's where we get the name Rocky Mountain Calvary. The name of our church is remembering what Christ has done, his sacrifice upon the cross, going to the place of the school. Again, in our imagination, what if this was your son who's 33 years old, who you watched grow up as a 13-year-old, as a 16-year-old, as a 3-year-old? Now he's been scourged, he's been spit upon, the crown of thorns has been placed in his head, he's been mocked, now he's carrying the cross out of Jerusalem. It's called the Via Della Rosa and, and heading to the place of Calvary to be crucified the place where his life is going to be ended. In verse 18, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. They crucified him. John doesn't have to go into the physical description of crucifixion because it was well known. There were so many people being crucified in this time. They would have a real vivid imagery of the cross and the crucifixion. Not the case for, for us today. What does it mean that Christ was crucified? They lifted the cross up, placed down into the ground. One hand placed upon the cross, the other placed upon the cross. Tent stakes going in to his wrists. Most likely right here to hold you up upon the cross, right in between those bones. And then feet put together and nailed upon the cross. And you would fight for every breath, pushing yourself up on that tent stake on your feet to get air into your lungs. And ultimately, you would wear out. We'll see that those crucified next to him, their legs were broken. That would prevent them from being able to push up. And ultimately, you would suffocate, no longer being able to get air into your lungs. No more of brutal death than this crucifixion. God had it ordained for Christ to die this way, for his blood to be shed in order for us to have forgiveness. There's the physical aspects of the cross, but there's also the spiritual aspects of the cross. Scripture tells us that Jesus is a propitiation for our sins, which means he appeases the wrath of God for us. God in his holiness, our sin actually invokes his wrath. It invokes his judgment. And in order for God to give forgiveness, he has to take the sin that I committed, put it upon Jesus Christ, and Jesus was actually punished for that sin in order for me to have forgiveness. Jesus paid that price in full. For God to be just, the price had to be paid. He couldn't just in his authority say, well, boys will be boys, girls will be girls, you know, we'll just let it go. Here's forgiveness. Jesus had to pay that price for us. So he's also experiencing the spiritual agony, the fellowship with the Father, now being the object of the Father's correction. So again, we think about this in the mind of the Father. Not only does he have to watch his son go through this, but now he has to give the punishment to his son that I deserve. He's pouring that out upon Jesus Christ. 
and this intense moment that's happening between the Father and the Son. And again, this emphasizes for us the love of God. And when did God love us? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it wasn't that God died for us when we had our act together, when we were doing our devotions, when we came to church on a negative 10 degrees in February. That's not when God died for us. God died for us when we didn't want anything to do with the Lord, when we rejected God, when we had a hard heart towards God. First John tells us that we love God because he first loved us. Isn't that incredible? He, he initiated this love. I like to think about it this way. You've got a gal who is longing to be married, and like most men and women, she's got a list, right? You know that list. You, know, you write down, okay, I want my future spouse to be all these things and have all these things. And so she had her list of Mr. Right. It was a Saturday morning. She'd happened to be sleeping in and got up a little bit late, had her bathrobe on, and then, ladies, she did one of those mud masks. You know what I'm saying. You, you know what those mud masks are. And it's kind of that alien green color that's right there. And all of a sudden, she hears the doorbell ring, and she's got these dorky bunny slippers on and the robe and the mask and the hair's doing this out of this planet, out of this world type of orbit thing and coffee breath and the whole nine yards and just happened to have a big zit that popped out that one morning. And, and as she opens the door, here's Mr. Wright. I mean, he's gentle but firm and handsome and strong and the list goes on and on and then he just starts to sing to her, you know. <laughs> la, la, la. And she's like, man, here I am at my worst, and he just looks at her and says, you're the most beautiful woman in the world, right? That would be initiating love when she's at her worst. And see, so much more, more than words or an illustration could ever put into perspective. Christ was crucified in his love for us. I also like to think of it this way. I recently read of a man who had a very successful company, a manufacturing company, and he was just about ready to retire and pass the company off to his son, and his son was going to take ownership and leadership of the company. And he was walking through the manufacturing floor, and he found his son just belittling and being irate and demeaning one of the employees. And so he just listened and continued to go by. And then he called his son and said, why don't you come up to my office? And he began to explain to his son that we will not treat employees like that in this company and that this would be his last day and he needed to go pack up his stuff and he was fired. And then he said, I'm going to put my dad hat on. Dad, he says, this is dad speaking to son. Son, I understood you just lost your job. How can I help you? You see that complete balance of justice but grace and forgiveness? And God as the judge has to say, this is your last day. You need to pack up your stuff. But then as the loving father, he says, you know what? I sent my son to die for you. If you will put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will receive forgiveness. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Who are the two men on either side? We know that there are two criminals. One cried out in faith and receiving forgiveness, and the other hardened his heart. Amazing that even in the last moment, the ninth hour, that someone can soften their heart and come to know Christ as their Savior. Savior. 
I hope and I pray that there's many of those types of conversions, many people that even in those last moments, they humbled their hearts and they came to know Jesus Christ. But even more so, I pray for the conversions of the heart of a young child that will walk with Christ all their days. But the grace of God is more than sufficient, even in that ninth hour, to extend and grant salvation. Verse 19 Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, when someone was crucified, they would put above the cross the reason that they were being crucified to be a deterrent. This was what Christ was crucified. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Greek, in Latin. Golgotha, the place of the skull, it was near the city. It was a crossway where many would see. And they wrote this title for Christ in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Hebrew, well, that's the language of religion. That's what the Jews spoke. Greek, that's the language of philosophy. And then Latin was the language of the law. God records this because his sacrifice was for all people. It being written in these three primary languages is the message of God's love for all. In verse 21, then the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. So the Jews didn't like this title that was given. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart and also a tunic. Now the tunic was without seam woven from top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose, is it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Quoted from Psalms 22, verse 18, which is worth writing down, Psalms 22. It so powerfully depicts the crucifixion of Christ long before crucifixion was ever invented. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. You've got a group of soldiers that are gambling for Jesus' garment while God in human flesh was being crucified for their sins. One soldier got it. The centurion we know from the other gospels looked up and saw the glory of of Jesus Christ. But these men, they're preoccupied with their own gain. They're preoccupied with their selfishness. And they're playing a game at the foot of the cross. And I can relate to this because growing up in a Christian home, to me, largely, unfortunately, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was playing a game. Of I'm going to hang around the things of Christ. I'm not even going to speak the lingo of Christ. I'm going to pretend like I love Christ just to get what I want. And these guys are only interested in making a little bit more money. They know that this garment's going to be more valuable in one piece, so they're going to gamble for it. And if they would just stop, and they would just look up, and they would see the love of God, their lives would be changed. And eventually, that's what happened to me. Hearing the message of grace, and God's sacrifice for me, and his love for me, and eventually won my heart. But I hope you know the love of God, and being in a relationship with the Lord, not just playing a game. There's no point in going to church to try to impress somebody, you know, because this is the expectation of of someone else or 
you know, I'm going to go to church because this is a good place to meet somebody, you know, and I, I, I think I'll try my, my hand here and I'll gamble here and I'll come long enough and maybe I'll meet somebody and find a good spouse. No, fix your eyes upon Jesus Christ. Fall in love with Jesus Christ. And also with our kids growing up in Christian homes is pointing them back to the grace and the forgiveness of God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and encourage them, hey, don't, don't just play a game. Don't just go through the motions. Look and see how much the Lord loves you. What if these men would have just lifted their eyes instead of being concerned with their own personal gain? The next few verses that we're going to go through are holy ground. Jesus says seven sayings upon the cross. And if you want a powerful study, study all seven. Because you can picture him upon the cross being crucified. Each breath is so difficult, but each word, each sentence is such a challenge. Methodical, specific, that he would say only seven things. Seven being the number of completion. And three of those things are right here. Right here in these next few verses, 25 through 30, and they express the heart of God. In verse 25, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother. Wow. This was prophesied to her when Jesus was brought to the temple, that her own soul would be pierced. Now she's seeing it before her very eyes. How many moments of flashbacks did she have of Jesus' life? Jesus' first steps, his bar mitzvah when he was 13 years old. Oh, remember that time when we lost him at the temple? That was a bad deal, you know. Oh, he was my only son that never talked back. Oh, the feeding of the 5,000. All these different things that she would go through. I remember when I was in a pickle at that wedding of Canaan, and we ran out of wine, and he saved my bacon and turned the water into wine. The heart of a mom, completely broken, completely shattered, wanting to take the place, surely of the suffering of her son. She's beholding this. She's watching this. It's the courage of a mom to be there in this moment. And don't you find that to be true? It doesn't matter how difficult. It doesn't matter how gruesome. A mom's going to be there. Mom's going to be in that hospital room. Mom's going to rally around and and come visit and be there in the diff most difficult of times. She's there. And his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. We gotta love Mary Magdalene. As we study this closely, she's at the whole process. She's there at the trial. She's there at the crucifixion. She's the first one there at the resurrection. These women love Christ. Maybe you're coming from a perspective of making much of Mary. And we don't want to undermine Mary in any way. She was a wonderful woman of God, but that's just it. She was a wonderful woman of God, and she's pointing to who? She's pointing to Jesus Christ. So why would we pray to Mary when we can pray to Jesus Christ? Mary's here pointing to Jesus Christ. In verse 26, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, so here's Christ and all this suffering and all of this agony, and he saw his mom. He saw her. He saw the pain that she was in, saw her probably weeping. And he sees John, the disciple whom he loved. John never refers to himself as the disciple John. It's always 
Well, I'm the one whom Jesus loves. He found the heart of God. He knew the love of God. So he sees John and he sees his mom and then notice what he does. He says, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own. Church, this is great. This is grand. This is glorious. There's several lessons here for us. And the first is, even in our greatest moments of suffering, be other-centered. Jesus is other-centered even at his worst moment when he's being crucified. He's caring for his mom. Also, I think it shows us the value of honoring your parents. Jesus honors his earthly mom here. He makes sure that she is cared for. Mary needs someone to care for her. And so now it's John's job. And John and Mary become mother and son from this point because Jesus bonded them. But I think more than anything else, you know what this shows us? The true family tree is the cross of Calvary. Where real family is formed is through the blood of Jesus. And we know the physical bond of blood is huge. You can't undermine that to any degree but it can't even compare when two people are bonded at the cross. So the ideal in any family, in any marriage, in any relationship with kids is you focus on Christ, you talk about Christ, you take communion together, you put Jesus Christ in the very center of that relationship and you're gonna find the strongest of bond. Have you found that some of your best relationships at times aren't even with biological family? And it's the family that's found inside of the blood of Jesus Christ. Because that's how strong the bond is. So the ideal is to have the biological bond, but also to have the bond of Calvary. If you're married, find a way to put Christ in the center of your marriage. He's going to bring you closer together than even common interests, than physical attraction, personality. All those things are important. But that is just small potatoes compared to the blood of Jesus Christ. Take communion together. Celebrate God's forgiveness together. Extend God's forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. Talk about what Christ is doing in your life. You're single and you want friendships to to go deeper. Good, godly friendships. Guess what you do? You talk about Jesus Christ. Ladies, you want to have a good friendship with another lady in the fellowship? Talk about Jesus Christ. Men, you want to have a great friendship, strong bond with other men? Talk about Jesus Christ. You can only go so far without the blood of Jesus Christ. Also, I think that this speaks so much to the fact that God creates family. And if you're considering and you're praying about adoption... God can take and he can take a family that's not biologically family and he can make them family through the blood of Jesus Christ when we focus upon Christ's love. Family is truly found in the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 28, after this, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. As we put together how these seven sayings, most likely Jesus says, I thirst, after he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a moment here where the fellowship between the Father and the Son is broken as Jesus becomes the penalty for our sin. What's the penalty of sin? It's separation from the Father, and Jesus goes through that. He then responds and says, I thirst, 
There's a physical thirst that's happening in Jesus Christ, but also a spiritual thirst. This is his only moment in all of eternity that he hasn't enjoyed fellowship with the Father. And he's saying, I'm thirsting for the presence of God. Jesus experienced a thirst to the greatest degree so that our thirst this evening could be satisfied. You do have a thirsty soul. I do have a thirsty soul, but it's not going to be found in more money. It's not going to be found in more accomplishments, more popularity, more possessions. Human relationships in and of themselves, though they're a great blessing, are never going to provide the satisfaction that you were meant to find in Jesus Christ. He said he was the living water. Now he backed it up. Living water is flowing from his sacrifice. He's saying, Eric, you don't have to thirst any longer because I died for you. I came to satisfy that thirst. The nation of Israel, they hewn for themselves wells, the Bible says, and rejected the well of living water. And how many times do we do that? We say, I'm over here trying to find satisfaction. I'm over here trying to find satisfaction. No, you're only going to find satisfaction in Jesus Christ. You may even be pursuing a godly thing in order to find satisfaction. It could become an idol in and of itself, and only the Lord's the one that can bring that satisfaction. I'd like to read to you out of Psalms, and this is Psalms 63, and to me, I can hear the voice of Jesus Christ in this psalm. Just take it in and listen to it, and you can look it up later. See if you hear the voice of Christ as well. He says, oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I've looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Can't you hear Christ upon the cross saying, I thirst and I long for the presence of the Father. Verse 29, now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there And they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. This is the cry of victory. This is the cry of, it's done. The price is paid in full. It is finished. Three words that we should know well. Not, okay, gang, good luck, try harder, keep going. He says, it is finished. He paid the debt that we could never pay. Let's say that you racked up some student loans and some student loans and some student loans. And student loans now can be six figures. You've got six figures of student loans. And then you've got some credit cards and some credit cards and some credit cards. And you get the picture. There's this huge pile of of debt, and it becomes a debt that you can't pay. And if someone came into your life and said, you know, I just like you. You know, you're a nice person. You got a great personality. I think you're going to go really far in life, and I just like going around paying off people's debt. So your student loan debt, your credit card debt, it's all wiped out, and here you go. You're like, what? This is amazing. How excited would you be tonight, even though it's freezing cold? You'd probably be like doing some dances and calling people and posting stuff on Facebook and sending out some tweets and doing all this kind of stuff because your debt's been paid. How much more so our spiritual debt? 
This is the good news. This is the gospel. It is finished. When we start the Christian life, do you know where we begin? It's paid in full. We start from the place of forgiveness. Not from this place of trying to earn or deserve God's favor. We start from the place of the power of sin being broken in our lives. It's good news. It's, it's great news. It is finished. Verse 31. <clears throat> Therefore, because it was a preparation day that the body should not return on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that, that they might be taken away. Amazing through this whole process that they're more concerned with tradition and ceremonial law than Jesus Christ himself. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. So both of the criminals. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So they come to Christ they know that he's dead, so there's no need to break his legs. But the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Significant. Again, every detail in Scripture is important. Why did they pierce him in the side? To make sure that he was dead. What came out? Blood and water. What comes out when a child's born? Blood and water. What happens at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? spiritual birth. We're born again at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It speaks of the life he gives. It speaks of the spiritual life that we're given at the cross of Jesus Christ. And he who had seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. So this is all recorded so that we could believe and have eternal life. That's how we receive this grace into our lives. For these things were done in this for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. Write down Exodus chapter twelve, verse forty six, the Passover. Passover was to be celebrated every year, remembering how God delivered them out of Egypt. The lamb was to be killed, the blood of the lamb put upon the doorpost. Well, God says specifically with these lambs, no bone which should be broken. Why? Because it pointed to when Jesus Christ would be crucified and not one of his bones were to be broken upon the cross. Why does God go into such detail? Because he wants us to know and understand that this was determined beforehand. Jesus was slain from the foundations of the earth. As God is giving his word all the way back in Exodus 17, what's on the mind of God? My son's gonna die. My son is going to be the sacrifice. My son is going to be the lamb. Also in Psalms 34, there's a prophecy of this, of his bones not being broken. In verse 37, and again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierce. This is Zechariah 12, verse 10. It's yet future. When Christ returns, he's still going to be bearing his wounds, the scars, and Israel's going to look on the one that they've pierced and they're going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Many Jews have already come to know Christ, but as a nation, they still reject Christ as the Messiah, and it's going to be that point when Christ returns. And we know it's going to be fulfilled. We know it's absolutely going to be fulfilled. So many things have already been fulfilled, but this is yet future. In verse 38, 
After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly. He was a follower of Christ who's committed to Christ, but he kept it private. He was one that would think, you know, it's not appropriate for me to talk about the things of Christ and who Christ is in my life. The reason that he was secret was for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he may take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus. We go public with our faith when we understand the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There's a boldness that happens in us when we see how much he loves us. And we go, I am kind of afraid of this consequence or that consequence or what happened in my my job or with my friends or my peers, but Christ loves me and Christ died for me. And Joseph's willing to risk it at this point and he receives permission to take down the body of Christ. And Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about 100 pounds, very expensive, bringing this myrrh and alloys to anoint the body of Christ. We know Nicodemus from John chapter 3. He was a leader in Israel, and he had come to to Christ at night, and this is his point of being public with his faith as well. Verse 40, then they took the body of Jesus, and they bound it in strips, and they bound in strips of linen with the spices, as was the custom of Jews to bury. They love Christ. That's why they ask for his body. Deuteronomy 21 says, Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. Shameful for Christ to have to be on the cross. They didn't want the one that they loved to be in this place any longer. We can understand that. We can, we can relate to that. So now they've got to get up on the cross. And then how, how did they get up on the cross? Did they have to bring a, some kind of stool And now they've got to pry out the nails out of Christ's hands, pry out the nail from his feet. The body of Jesus Christ falls upon their shoulders. Their clothes are just saturated in blood. The imagery is thick here as they went through this and their love for Jesus Christ. And they've got these strips of linen that they've put the alloys and the, the myrrh and they begin to Wrap the body of Jesus Christ. Wrap the body of of Jesus Christ. In verse 41, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because the Jews' preparation for the tomb was nearby. Isaiah 53 prophesies of Christ's death that he would be with criminals but in his burial, he would be with the rich. And this is fulfilled. This is a rich man's tomb. No one had ever used it before. The stones rolled away. Christ is put into the tomb. Now, church, every time that the cross is mentioned, it's usually linked with the resurrection. The gospel is Jesus Christ was crucified and three days later rose again. So read ahead chapter 20, and we'll study chapter 20 together. But as we prepare to go tonight, see if you can catch this thought with me. Is the cross, is the answer for everything that we go through in this life? And you say, that's quite a statement. I don't know if I trust that or believe that. 
Because the cross is not just the beginning point for us of how we receive Christ as our Savior, but it's every point in between. Jesus, he's the main thing. And of Christ, the main thing is his sacrifice for us. So let's take a few and see if this works and if it fits. Well, forgiveness. If you're struggling with forgiveness, where do you go? Do you try to talk yourself into it? You go to the cross. You meditate upon what we read tonight, and you come to a conclusion, I'm forgiven because of what Christ has done. If you're at a place where you're in doubt, and can I trust God in the midst of a trial, you know the place that you go? You go to the cross. Because at the cross, you see the goodness of God, and then the goodness of God It's the answer to our doubt. We go, God, I can trust you in the midst of this trial. If we're going through a season of great discouragement, and it just seems like it's a darker and darker tunnel, it's a darker and darker cave, we can't find a way out, you know what the answer is? It's the cross. We go to the cross, and we see all of the suffering that he went through, and we find encouragement there. There's going to be some encouragement in friends. There's going to be some encouragement in this or that, but it's not going to be enough. The encouragement that you long for, it's found in the cross. Maybe there just seems to be a lack of joy in my life. I don't really have a spark in my eyes, a spring in my step. Well, what's the answer going to be? Am I going to try to talk myself into it? Am I going to fake it till I make it? All right, I'm going to fake it till I make it. I want to be one of those joyful Christians. I got to go to the cross. I got to look at Jesus and all that he's done for me, and it's the source of joy. And we start to look through the different things of life. Bitterness, I just can't get over bitterness. You go to the cross, and you look at all that Jesus has done, and that he's paid the price for that sin, and that becomes the source to be able to get over bitterness. And we start to look at, okay, relationships well, Eric, how could, how could relationships, how could the answer be found in the cross of Jesus Christ? You begin to take a crucified and resurrected Savior and put him in the middle of a relationship, and you find God starting to heal and reconcile relationships. It all goes back to the cross. So tonight, as we end in communion, take first your heart, your life, and first understand that you're loved by God. You're incredibly loved by God. All that we've read is because God loves you and his sacrifice for you. And then you take your current situation, whatever you're going through in your life, and you begin to look at that situation through the lens of the cross, focusing upon the cross. Jesus endured this shame because of the joy that was set before him. Hebrews 12 tells us that. And we endure this life for the joy that's set before us, seeing our Savior and seeing our God. And I'm not saying it's quick, I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying the cross of Jesus Christ is that powerful. If we'll take the time, not just for a few moments, but over a long period of time and some of the depths that we go through in this life, some of the pits that we go through in this life, and we look at the cross of Jesus Christ and we focus upon what he has done for us. So let's stand.